This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversations. Tonight is part of our ongoing series about mental illness in the family, and I'm going to be speaking with Rachel about her experience of mothering a son with life-threatening depression. Rachel is a family liaison counselor for a major American university. She's the mother of three grown kids. Brad, who suffers from a life-threatening depression and is currently in a state mental hospital, another son with depression and anxiety, and a daughter who has suffered the fear and sadness of her two brothers' mental illnesses. Rachel is offering this interview anonymously in order to protect the privacy of her children. Welcome to Safe Space, Rachel. Thank you very much, Anne. It's a pleasure, and um, I'm so pleased that you're doing this series. We're going to focus mostly today on Brad's story, although keeping in mind always that we know you have two other kids. So I'd love to start by just asking you to tell me a little bit of who Brad is and the story of what happened to him with his depression. Sure. Because Brad is, of course, so much more than his depression um, and so much more to me because I remember when he was just the most sunny, solid, secure little guy who just couldn't stop laughing in his early childhood. Um, and he loved cartoons, and he adored his little brother, and he, and he admired his, his big sister, and he um, played around the neighborhood and loved superheroes and was always sort of charging around as a superhero you know, with a cape and so forth, um, and just the most adoring, just loving and lovable little guy. And also an artist, um, and I know that's a common theme. Um, it's so often um, art is a double-edged gift. But when he was young, he was very gifted in the arts, and he remained that way and, and pursued it in school and was considered a promising artist. And in his teens, in his sophomore year, he just suddenly dropped out of school. He was living with his father. We were divorced. And just all of a sudden, he was doing wonderfully in school and had his whole life. He just dropped out and came back to my house and barricaded himself in his room, you could almost say. He only came out for, for meals and refused to see, to see doctors or, or counselors or to talk about what was going on and just went on the Internet and, and kept himself in, um, in his little, little bedroom in my house. I was, of course, terribly worried and um, was trying a number of different things to help him when um, one night um, he knocked on my bedroom door in the middle of the night and I opened the door and he sobbed, I'm so sorry, Mom, and dropped at my feet um, unconscious. And, uh, and I got a phone call and I, I had sense to pick it up and it was an Internet friend saying, I've just talked with Brad. He says he's just taken a whole bunch of pills. He may be in danger. And I said, thank you, I'll, you know, and hung up, called 911, and just held him in my arms, saying, please don't go, please don't go, and waited for the EMTs. That was his, uh, his first suicide attempt. Um, and he seemed to get better after that. Um, not to have it easy, but to get better. And he went on to a, a prestigious art school with a full scholarship and graduated with highest honors. You know, not that it was easy, but he, he you know, and he sometimes stopped for a bit and then went back, but he was doing well. And then afterwards he got a, he got a good job. 
And then in his later 20s, he just crashed and couldn't manage to live in his own place anymore, even though he'd been helping other people in the family and helping his little brother with a place to live and, uh, and others. He, suddenly, he just couldn't manage and he ended up being hospitalized and going into residential treatment and back and forth. And then a year and a half ago, he landed in the hospital again and basically hasn't been out of the hospital since. He was out, he would be out briefly um, and then attempt suicide and go back in. And fortunately, one, one hospital held on to him until he could be put in a long-term hospital um, setting in in a state hospital where he's been the last year still attempting suicide. He's attempted uh, suicide five times in the hospital, and he is uh, just desperately, desperately depressed. So all this treatment has not really been able to help him? It hasn't. Uh, A lot of different medications have been tried. Uh, they're trying one right now that everyone feels a little more hopeful about, and he's saying that he that he feels a little better. So we're we're crossing fingers. Uh, if imagine. if it works, it's an extremely powerful uh, drug with lots of of pretty heartbreaking side effects, but it beats the alternative. So ever since that one catastrophic night when he was a teenager, you've really had to live in fear for his life. Um, I have, I have, yes, I've, I have feared for the phone ringing, you know, and feared, feared for his life, absolutely. I'm listening to his story. It sounds like it illustrates in some way so powerfully the cyclical nature of depression, you know, that he, he was terribly ill and then went on to be this extraordinary art student and so on. And then it sounds like he was just hit with it so hard afterward and then really has not yet been able to come back to himself. Right. Um, they, They told me when he was 17 and had this first breakdown, that it put him at risk of a, of another one, but of course I didn't want to think about that. No. <laughs> but in indeed, I gather I gather that each one puts you at higher risk of a of, of another one. Yes. One of the subjects that I want to ask you about is this kind of process of of loss for you. That here is this sunny boy, your artistic, uh, you know, as you describe him. I'm just picturing this very beautiful son. And, you know, now he's been in this hospital for a year and a half and so desperate to not be alive. And I'm, I'm wondering how, how you bear that sort of series of losses and if, if you might speak to what, what that process of grief has been like for you. Well, I thank you for recognizing it because it is grief, absolutely, um, both for him and for me. Um, uh, and one of the things he's struggling with now, of course, as time goes on, he really has more and more to be depressed about <laughs> um, because he ha- he has lost so much. For me, the process is is really well described by by the phrase "ambiguous loss," which is the title of a book and a phrase that um, that a a therapist uses, whose name is Pauline Boss, B O S S. And if you go on the Internet, actually, and just Google ambiguous loss, her website turns up. And I was so relieved to find that, to find that book and that concept because it describes that feeling of 
you know, you've lost the person. They're 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 still they're still still here. They're still alive, but they're not the same person. So you've lost them, but you haven't lost them. And how do you struggle with that? Because it's also an ongoing process. I visit I visit Brad every day in the hospital, and sometimes he's there, and sometimes he's not. Not literally, but but it, it, some sometimes you know the old Brad is there, and sometimes he's so either under a cloud from the the weight of the medication or so tortured by his his desperate desperate thoughts that that he's not there uh, he's not the same person that um, that I raised and he's not the same person that that I knew in in his 20s and he was not the same person he knew so it's it's a constant struggle and and frankly I I don't know what I'd do without good therapy um to be to be honest I don't know how I would have gotten through last winter for example um when he first got to this long-term hospital without without a good therapist just to help me sort that all through and also to be a place to grieve where it was understood what what I what I meant <laughs> as um, I listen to you the, you know the parallel that comes to me is 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 what I hear from so many people about what it's like to go visit an aging parent with dementia in a nursing home exactly and kind of the driving you know making themselves go uh, because they really believe in that and want to be there but coming home driving home in tears every time because yeah. either the parent was, you could feel this, their essence still present, and other times not, and it sounds so similar. Yes, yes, and and uh, and, and Pauline Boss talks about a number of examples, but those are exactly two of them. Uh, complicated in Brad's case because you know we don't know. Uh, I know with a dementia, sometimes a person comes out from under the cloud and then goes back. And uh, with Brad, we don't know how much, you know, how much he's lost permanently and how much he's lost temporarily. We know it's some of both, and he knows it's some of both. So you're not even sure what to hope for. Exactly, yeah. I can imagine feeling afraid to hope. It's hard. It's hard for him to hope and for us to hope. It, it almost makes more sense, you know, just to to live the wonderful wisdom of one day at a time, just not thinking about the future, but just, you know, if it's a good day today, thank you. <laughs> right. And if it's not, well, you know, um, there's tomorrow. So I want to ask you now a little bit about your experience as a mother. You know, we live in a culture where mothers get blamed for almost everything that their kids struggle with. Yeah. Or, you know, we blame ourselves. And yeah. um, I, I'd like to ask you a little bit about how that has been for you, wh- whether you have struggled with all the ways that you question, well, did, would, did I do this wrong or would this made a difference? Or how much has that been a struggle for you in feeling or feeling ashamed that your son struggles so much with this illness? It's one of the toughest, toughest things of all. I, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't have a moment when I say, oh, well, maybe if I'd done this differently, maybe if I'd done that differently. Uh, and it doesn't help that there is still, you know, in, it, it, there's been a lot of improvement, but there's still a lot of blaming of families. So when you go to visit in the hospital, you know, it, it, 
you know you're under suspicion. You know you're being watched. Are you a bad influence, are, or are or are you kind of at best a neutral influence? And usually, with there's a family meeting, it's kind of about kind of getting the history to try to dig out what the family did wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and it's and it's so so it's hard it's hard to fight those thoughts because they're 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 being reinforced to some extent. But I'm perfectly capable of doing it all by myself because it's so hard to accept that something so awful could happen to someone so beautiful. You know, you just you're looking for some explanation and sometimes it feels as if as if any explanation, even that's being your fault, is better than there being no explanation and his just having been struck out of the blue. Did you find in the beginning that it was hard to tell people that he was this ill or that he was in the hospital? Because Brad also suffers from that same sense of shame, he, and he has asked me, to, he has begged me to honor his privacy. So I have only told a few close friends, and he understands that I need to do that for my own well-being. And other, otherwise, um, I live in two worlds. You know, the world in which I seem to be this person who is just actively pursuing their career and and a busy life, and the world of someone whose whose mind is is always, you know, on that hospital and how Brad is doing. Um, a saving grace has been NAMI, and I know it's been mentioned in your programs before, but the. Uh, National Alliance for Mental Illness, um, NAMI.org, ha- has has a chapter right in my area, and that's a place where I can be all that I am, because uh, I'm all of those things. But I am also uh, the the loving mother of this profoundly ill, desperately ill young man, um, and I. It's so wonderful to be in a setting where I can be all of those things, and where. Everything I'm going through is familiar and understood, and not a shock, um, and not a shock. And so that has that has helped. That has helped a lot. It seems like such a difficult bind. You know, so often mothers feel in this bind of the the tension between self care and care for their child. But in this case, right? So you wanna you wanna respect your child's privacy. This is part of why we're doing this interview so anonymously. Yes, and yet it's I'm, only for him. I'm very proud of him, actually. Uh, I think he has enormous courage and strength and 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 stamina and and um, just you know I, I just think it's amazing and his, and his um, his spirit. But I I'm honoring his wishes. Yes, and I can also imagine though that only being able to tell a couple of friends is quite difficult for you because what we hide tends to make tends to feel more shameful over time it 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 does it, 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 it that's exactly that's exactly right you know it, we associate secrets with shame um, at least i do so it does it does tend to make it it more shameful and i also think the isolation does you know you tend to think if you're alone with something you must have done something wrong <laughs> um, or i do so the fact that um, this isn't the kind of illness where people bring you casseroles <laughs> also adds to that sense, I think. 
And how do you understand the casserole? The casserole phenomenon has come up in almost every interview in this series. That you know, if your if your child was sick in the hospital with cancer, people would be making dinner for you. And when your child is in the hospital with mental illness, nobody makes a casserole. And how how do you understand that, Rachel? Well, I think there are a couple of things. First of all, I'm not I'm not necessarily letting people know who would who would want to do that. But I think the other thing is that it, 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 this, it, it, mental illness does carry such a stigma, and we're all afraid of it because we don't understand it. You know, um, if something's wrong with someone's brain because they had a stroke or they have Alzheimer's or they ha- they're having a diabetic reaction, we don't stigmatize it because um, we know, okay, we, we know what caused it. With you know, with what we call mental illness, you know, we don't know, we don't quite get yet what caused it. I think we're getting closer. I think we will, but we don't. So it has that same just, just sort of deep, you know, bone-like fear um, that cancer used to have. When when I was growing up, nobody used the word cancer. They uh, they all they just referred to it as this person is very ill. You know because we didn't understand what it, what it was about. Um, and I feel as if we're, we're still there. So I, I do feel, and people, they don't know what to say. And they, they, they don't, you know, even if there's someone that I, that I may have let know some of what's going on, they're afraid they'll say the wrong thing. We don't have kind of the same, we don't feel as if the same protocols apply as as with cancer or diabetes or something. So you you, do, you you're, people seem afraid to ask me, how's Brad? Um, even though I'd love it if they would. I think that's so often true. We don't we, we imagine we we would make someone sad if to bring it up as if the person isn't already thinking of it. Right. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and I'm speaking with Rachel about her son Brad's life-threatening depression. I want to ask you now more about suicide and about your experience of his attempts as a parent. One of the other people I've interviewed in this series has spoken about living with a mentally ill family member as a form of relational trauma. Mm. And just hearing you tell the story earlier about him saying, I'm sorry, Mom, and just dropping unconscious at your feet. I mean, I could feel my whole body starting to tickle with goosebumps, imagining your terror in that moment, and then finding out there have been subsequent attempts. And I, I, I guess I'd like to ask you, does it feel like that was a traumatic moment for you? And, and what has helped you bear this kind of recurrent sense of trauma? Well, I'm so glad that you're that you uh, are using the word trauma because I think that too is is kind of under under recognized as as part of the experience. Um, it is absolutely trauma. I have no question because I experienced other kinds of trauma as a, as a child that are sort of the classic kinds, and it, there's there's no difference. <laughs> this is trauma, no question. Um, when I when I think about that experience of Brad dropping at my feet, it has that same sort of searing quality. It's sort of it's sort of etched in your mind in a in a different kind of way than most memories are. And um, and then uh, with each succeeding time that he has attempted suicide, of course there has been a re-traumatization. 
also I have a similar sort of searing feeling about walking into the hospital um, a couple of years ago uh, after I'd learned that he had attempted suicide and he'd actually driven himself to the hospital after overdosing, arrived just in the nick of time to collapse and be taken into the emergency room. And I tore out to to see him and found him in an ICU in restraints. Uh, and yes, they still do that with people that they're afraid are, are going to run away or going to hurt themselves or hurt someone else. They still tie them down. And so that that is seared in my mind in the same way. Or walking into the date hospital he's in now um, and seeing just how squalid it was and how um, just dingy and how you know, and just just how what horrible conditions, physical conditions, that it made my knees buckle. So yes, there's no question. And even sometimes when he'll just say to me, you know, Mom, I really, I, I really, really would be better off dead because I know it would be better off for you. I know I should have died, and that I feel so awful that I had didn't do that for the family. Um, because everyone would be better off if I were dead. You know, just just hearing those words, it just ching. <laughs> it goes. It just goes into a. It just goes into a place in your heart that is. It's trauma. And of course, it it's so sad because almost everyone I've worked with who is suicidal has that belief genuinely yeah. that people would be better off, and it's almost an act of generosity in the strangest possible way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or at least perceived that way. And it, it's so hard to convince someone that that is the farthest thing from the truth. Right, right. Yeah. Again, you know, I think what helps has, is being as places where you can tell your story and having people that it's safe to tell tell your story to and where you're not worried about their where you feel as if they'll be okay if they hear these really hard things. Um, I see. So you, sometimes you worry that it will actually hurt the listener to hear yeah, it, yeah. that it's so painful. And so when you say that, is, are you referring to NAMI or are you referring to other friendships where you feel like you can really both. safely? Yeah, some of both, particularly NAMI, because, because particularly people who have been through it. So they get it, yeah. So what NAMI has given you, it sounds like, is a place to be yourself, to tell your story without censoring it, without feeling you have to protect the listener, right. where you can sort of not compartmentalize all of who you are. Right. Do they also give you, I mean, is it a place where you can also kind of brainstorm effective ways to interact with the team? Or Absolutely. Yeah. Resources, strategies, yeah. you know, names of good doctors and lawyers and and but and and but also strategies for talking with with doctors absolutely yeah so the last thing i want to ask you before we're going to have to stop is i you you know you you describe walking into the state hospital and seeing it how squalid it is which is very profound because people of course end up living there for a long stretch at a time and um i'm curious to ask you about now that you've been exposed to so much of the mental health system, how you, you know, what your feelings are about how we as a society invest in the care of people who suffer from such illnesses. And 
Well, we, I think partly because we don't feel as if we feel helplessly feel as if there's not much you can do, they're terribly under-resourced. The, the staff and the, and, the, and the programs and the hospitals profoundly under-resourced. And I think the, the irony is that with, with good resources, people can get better. But we actually create a self-fulfilling prophecy that it's hopeless because by not providing the resources that would make it better. And when you say that, with resources we could make it better, what are you talking about? Well, they, 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 they're beginning to build hospitals that, that are compassionate and respectful and where the staff are trained to be respectful. I mean, often the, the staff are shaming because that's kind of our whole approach to mental illness at this point because they haven't been trained that if you're, if you're respectful, if you're supportive, if you're positive, that can make a difference. And, and, you can, and you also convey that just in the physical surroundings. If you provide, you know, uh, rooms where the windows don't leak rain in during a hurricane, enough blankets, and, you know, and, uh, that, uh, you know, and there's some privacy, that, that it's like any other illness, we, you know, you provide good, you know, good facilities. This changes the message um, for both, the, both the, the caregivers and the patients. I see. So even almost the aesthetics of the, st- the structure itself can convey the sense of hopelessness and helplessness. Yes. Yes. Rachel, we are going to have to stop. I want to thank you so much for being my guest and for having the courage to name these things. I, I want to say, you know, I think you're observation that because we don't understand the origins of mental illness very well yet, that that how much that contributes to the stigma and that this sense of helplessness, you know, it makes me feel hopeful in a strange way that as neuroscience progresses, that some of the stigma and some of this under-resourcing may in fact change. Do do you have that hope also? Absolutely. And I think there's no question that that, uh, programs like yours are helping. And I'm deeply grateful. Thank you so much, Rachel. This is Dr. Ann on WMPG. I've been speaking to Rachel about her son Brad's life-threatening depression. And I want to just reiterate the book that Rachel recommended is called Ambiguous Loss by Pauline Boss. My thanks tonight to Jen Hodston for mixing the sound and to Maurice Lennon for the music. If you just got to hear part of this interview and like to hear all of it, please go to our website in about a week at www.safespaceradio.com and we'll have the show up there and you can email that to friends. You can also sign up there to subscribe to get a weekly email with the link to that week's show. You can download our show from iTunes to listen to it in your morning commute and you can like us on Facebook. Coming up next is The Watchdog.